Welcome, everybody. Welcome back. It's been a month. Welcome back. Welcome to your all-time favorite podcast in the world and arguably the most useful podcast out there. Although I gotta say, guys, I've launched a new podcast recently. So this is still the most useful. It is still hopefully your favorite. But the other one is also just as much your favorite and just as useful. It's called How Far One Can Go. It's on endurance. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've uh, heard me talk about endurance a lot. Maybe you're annoyed by it. You're like, shut up about endurance. We just want to listen to uh, learn about persuasion. So that's why I just went ahead and started an endurance podcast. Having a ton of fun with that. And if you're interested in learning more or listening, hearing what it's about, type in how far one can go or just my name, and it should pop up on any and every podcast platform out there. Uh, I interview professional athletes, amateur athletes, subject matter experts, um, just, you know, whole shows about helping you go further, explore your limits, shatter your limits. It's fun. It's a good time. I think you guys would dig it. Uh, There's one episode in particular. The reason I'm like still talking about this is I wanted to bring up one episode in particular. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might remember Dr. MR Blank. We talked about um, a memorization technique, which was fantastic. She was one of my all-time favorite guests. Just She might have been the only person with a doctorate that I've had on the show. And in a time, an era of pseudo-experts, she's an actual expert, which was really cool and refreshing. So I had her on the endurance podcast because she's also an endurance athlete, uh, but she's a psychology, she's a cognitive psychology performance coach for military special ops teams. So she, in my other podcast, talks about the value and impact of using visualization and imagery and the difference between the two um, on overall performance and how to achieve peak performance through those two tools, the use of visualization and imagery. And it's like 100% to a T useful in your communication whether you're in sales, fundraising, recruiting, or just trying to get somebody to go on a date with you, whatever the case is. So anyways, uh, go to How Far One Can Go. I only have a handful of episodes on there because it just launched. Dr. MR Blank, uh, Power of Visualization. You'll dig it. Anyways, let's go ahead and jump into today. If you're like brand new to this and you're, you're still here, you haven't left yet. Um, my name is Jake quick snapshot on me. I'm a former door-to-door salesman. I knocked on almost 100,000 doors over the handful of years and then helped launch a sales startup with some other amazing people. My job there was to build and train a national team of salespeople. And we hit some fun milestones like the Inks list of the 500 fastest growing companies in the nation a couple times while I was the president. Uh, But over the past decade, I've had this yearning to pursue my calling, which is fighting human trafficking. And so I split off from Basemakers in 2021 to launch my own consulting business, helping nonprofits win bigger donations. Uh, And then through that, learned a little bit more about the anti-trafficking space and nonprofits and have started my own nonprofit. And you're like, man, what the heck is going on now? I just really wanted to learn about persuasion. So anyways, let's go ahead and (laughs) we'll jump right into it. Um, Main idea of the show, we dive into principles that we borrow from the world of sales or maybe psychology or neuroscience or something fun like that. Principles that will help you to become more persuasive um, and a more effective communicator. And I also try to record this in one take. 
because I'm working on becoming a better communicator myself. So that means it's raw, choppy. I stumble over my words, but we will get through it together and it will be fun. All right. I had a question come through. Question come through about the use of psychological persuasion principles when building a resume. I had a couple thoughts come to mind on this and I'm excited to get into something specific because it's been something that's, or it's, it's something that's been on my mind for a while and I thought it would align perfectly with building a resume. But hey, look, if you are not in a position in life where you need to build your resume, don't check out. This is good for absolutely anything and everything, especially if you're in marketing or advertising, sales in general. Um, it's going to be super helpful for you. And I think anybody that does want to retool their resume or you're building one for the first time, this should help. But hey, quick disclaimer. I've never had a job where I had to submit a resume for. Um, I've, app- I've applied and sent in resumes to two places in the past couple years. And I got rejected from both. So I'm not the person that you want to take resume advice from. Just tell you that right now. Uh, I've either started my own things or I've done commission only sales job where nobody cares what's what's on your resume. Um, I was just about to say something from when Michael Scott uh, hammered the phones as a side job because same thing. Anyways, uh, I, I haven't had to have a job where I got hired based off of my resume. The only times I've tried, I was uh, rejected twice. So that means either I don't look that good on paper or my resume itself isn't that great. So take everything that I'm saying with a grain of salt. We'll take the principles seriously. These are concrete. They are based from uh, in science, from psychology. But um, take anything that I have to say based off your resume with a grain of salt. All right. I am going to start this this uh, episode off interestingly, I hope. Red house violin, blue zebra, grass drum, camel toothpick, yellow. I'm not going to repeat those words. I want you to think about those though and see which ones you remember because it's going to pertain to what we're talking about today, which is something called the serial position effect. The serial position effect essentially is when studying a list of items or list of things, uh, how well we remember each particular item depends on where the item is located in the list, like whether it was towards the front, towards the back, or in the middle. All right, so I gave you that list of words. I don't know how many of you can remember all of them or if you only remember a couple, but let's see if it lines up with how the serial position effect works. There are two core pillars of the serial position effect. The first is the primacy effect. So the primacy effect is our ability to remember items at the beginning of a list. And then the recency effect is our ability to remember the items that were most recently mentioned. So towards the end of the list. So do you remember the words that I said? Let's let's see if the primacy effect was at play with you. Think about the first three words that I said. If you can remember that I said red house and violin, great work. You're a pro. The primacy effect at work. Uh, If you can remember the last three that I said, which was camel, toothpick, yellow, that's the recency effect at play. Those of you that can remember the middle, you're probably smarter than me. Uh, You've got a great quick mind and congrats to you. 
But a lot of you probably don't remember at least one or two from the middle. So that's kind of the result of the serial position effect is that we tend to forget or at least not remember a lot of the items in the middle of a list, right? A lot of us know what the beginning of pi is, 3.1, 3.14. I don't know, 3.141. All right, so I know the first four digits. I don't know anything after that. And I don't know if the recency effect is at play. Well, I guess it would be because it's not about the actual end of the list. It's just about whatever you heard last. So it doesn't have to be the whole pi. If someone just recited 20 digits of pi, I guess you could remember the last few. That would still be the recency effect. So still comes into play. All right, so I was curious to just see how the the serial position effect plays out in front of my eyes on a regular basis uh, without me even realizing. And the first thing that came to mind was, well, when researching this, I did discover that a lot of marketers and advertisers will take this into account. They know that the the serial position effect is at play. So, you know, for in a 60 second commercial, they're likely to put the most important or impactful information in the beginning in the end of the ad. And I thought, huh, okay, well, I wanna see this for myself. I watched a couple Super Bowl ads and I think it rings true. So if you watch the Super Bowl, then you might remember these two. I didn't watch it. Um, I didn't even know who was playing until like the day before. <laughs> but I went back on YouTube to watch uh, a couple ads from the Super Bowl. And the first one, this one, this one might be the most popular. It's the Toyota ad, which was keeping up with the Joneses. So in the very beginning of the ad, a few cars are all lined up. It's Tommy Lee Jones driving one car, Leslie Jones driving another car, and Rashida Jones driving the third car. And like that stands out. And then in the middle, there are a bunch of little interchanges where they're like chatting with each other because they're racing. Uh, but I, I don't remember what they said. I'm just writing down at least my perspective on this. So I, I truly don't remember what they said. And this was like fresh after I watched it. I was I was typing these notes up. And then the recency effect. So what happened toward the end of the commercial? And that was, that made an impression. And it's Nick Jonas pulls up trying to join them. And they're all like, this is the Jones, not the Jonas. And then Tommy Lee Jones is like, yeah, get out of here, whoever you are. Like he's so old, he doesn't even know who Nick Jonas was. But it made me laugh and that stuck in my mind. So I remember the beginning of the ad and the end. And I truly forgot the middle. I know they were racing, but I don't remember what they said. Well, I can still remember like Tommy Lee Jones's actual lines in the end of the ad. All right, another example, do you guys remember the crypto cryptocurrency commercial from the Super Bowl with Larry David? Which that got me thinking. How many people actually know who Larry David is or what he looks like that are under like 35, 40 years old? That has to be the cutoff. I mean, the guy wrote Seinfeld, but I'm 31 and that's kind of before my time. Uh, and he's the only reason I would know of him. So you think they're just trying to target older people? That's got to be the thing, right? Like maybe they're the most skeptical? Probably. I don't know. Thinking out loud. Anyways, the primacy effect with the commercial with Larry David. So he he starts off, well, what the commercial is about is Larry David at different eras in time, like cavemen inventing the wheel or whatever. Uh, and then something about Egypt, like I, I legitimately forgot a handful of them, which is proving the point. Uh, and something about the uh, people signing the Declaration of Independence. And then at the very end, so it's him in different points in time where people coming up to him with good ideas, things that really happened in history and him saying they're stupid. And so the first one, 
he has a guy come up to him saying that he invented the wheel. And Larry David is like, no, that'll never take off. That's stupid. And then he progresses through the other eras. And then at the very end, he has a guy come up and tell him that he wants to use this app FTX to trade crypto. And Larry's like, that'll never take off. Nobody's going to buy into that or whatever. Um, and so again, I remember the very end and I remember the very beginning, which is kind of all you need, right? You don't even need the multiple eras in the middle of what he told those people were stupid. You only need to know that he told the guy who created the wheel was stupid. And then he told the guy who created, or the app for trading cryptocurrency was stupid. So it's likening those two together. So that's what sticks, sticks out. And that's what was imprinted at least on my own personal memory. So it does work. It is real. And if you remember those ads, then you know what I'm talking about. All right, so how do we apply this to building a resume? Well, we've got three sort of core sections, so to speak. Everybody might have their own version of building a resume, but oftentimes you'll see the skills up towards the top, then you'll see work experience, and then towards the bottom you'll see sort of accolades, certifications, volunteer experience, maybe hobbies if you've got like zero accolades or certifications, you throw your hobbies on there. Um, So those three sections. So we can take the serial position effect into account when building our resume, starting with the skill section at the top. Most resumes I've seen, that's like a, let's say a three by three box, three skills going down with three different columns and three skills per column, right? And then three across. So naturally, when we read that, at least everywhere except for the Middle East, you're going to read from left to right. So you would want to position your your top strengths at the far left of that list and the far right of that list. Because as somebody is scanning over this, especially if somebody is looking at hundreds of resumes, if they are scanning over your resume, and if the serial position effect is real, which I tried to prove that it is through reciting those 10 words in the beginning and my own experience watching the Super Bowl ads literally right after them, then there's a good chance whoever is reading your resume is going to forget some of those skills that were in the middle. They might remember the beginning and they might remember the end. So if you have a list of skills and if it's just vertical listed, same thing, right? Just like keep the keep the most important skills at the beginning and at the end. And if you have one of those columns with rows three by three of all your skills, the most important ones on the left, and then the most second most important ones on the right, and the skills that don't really matter, like the whole Microsoft Office thing that nobody cares about, you can put that smack, smack in the middle. Definitely don't put that in the beginning or the end. All right, so that's the first section. Now work experience. Same thing. One more thing to consider that I've talked about before. I don't know if it's on this podcast or elsewhere, but our brains tend to make assessments on information based off of the average of the information that it hears, not the sum, the average and not the sum. So if you, you know, people that aren't familiar with this, that really want to prove a point that their work experience is perfect for the job that they're applying for, and they list six, nine jobs that leads to a two-page or even a three-page resume, you're actually not helping yourself at all. You're better off reducing the number of work experiences that you place on the resume 
and just making them really impactful because that's going to boost the average as a whole. So we know that, right? Average, not the sum. So you're going to have to choose a couple to eliminate and just choose enough work experiences to keep your resume to one page. And one page is also important just because these people that are reviewing them are typically reviewing many, right? And so you want to keep everything short, sweet, and powerful since our brains are making assumptions based off of the average. And I gave you that list in the very beginning that had 10 different words on it. And some of you may have forgotten what was in the middle. But if I had given you a list of five words, maybe you just would have remembered all five because the list was shorter. Same principle here with the resume, right? If everything's great on there, we want to shorten it so that they have a higher chance of remembering everything. And anything that they might not remember, we want sandwiched in the middle. All right, so work experience. Try to choose, I would say, three because that seems to be the amount that you can fit on a one-page resume. Ideally, you could have your strongest or most relevant work experiences at the top and the bottom, and then a lesser lesser relevant work experience sandwiched in the middle, just like we did with the skills. Uh, it doesn't have to be the case, and if you have three just equally strong work experiences, keep them all up there, but just only keep it to three. Only keep it to enough that you can keep on one page. And then the last piece would be accolades. Same exact thing, right? And this is typically set up like one of those three by three rows, at least on resumes that I've seen, similar to skills at the top. Keep the the most relevant accolades for that job on the far left or the far right, depending on if their eyes are reading from left to right and top to bottom, then keep them most the most relevant ones at the top and the bottom. All right. So basically, if you do this, guaranteed to get hired. <laughs> Just kidding. Definitely not the case. But I would love to know how it turns out uh, for those of you that try this with a resume and send it off somewhere. Please keep me updated. All right. What if uh, you don't need to worry work about worry about building a resume, but you're curious as to how this plays out in other forms of persuasion? Well, I think mainly it plays out when we want to provide somebody, a stakeholder, with the list of reasons as to why they should move forward. That's why they should buy, donate, join our movement, whatever the case may be. So a couple of things to consider. One, what I just said, which is that it, our brains make assessments based off of the average of information instead of the sum. So if you're tempted to provide somebody with a huge list of reasons as to why they should sign with your company or whatever the case may be, you're going to be better off condensing that reasons down to yeah, the list of reasons down to just maybe like the top few best ones. And I say few because I don't know what your circumstances are. Maybe it's three, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10. Uh, but whatever, whatever the case may be, shorten that list down so that the average turns out to be really, really high. Instead of a mediocre sum, that's also difficult for somebody to remember because they forgot all the middle items on the list anyways. So shorten it down and then put the most important items on that list in the beginning and at the end. One more quick example of how the serial position effect could play out is if you are in some type of pitch competition, which if there are entrepreneurs listening to this and you're learning how to be more persuasive when it comes to getting investment for your your movement, for your, your company, or startup, 
you might be participating in pitch competitions. Same thing for uh, nonprofits that are participating in competitions to try to win donations and fundraising for their nonprofit. Uh, serial position effect. How does this play out? Well, we just talked about how it could actually play into your words, into your pitch. But you could also consider where you are in line that day to give your pitch. So if you're a part of a pitch competition for investment and there are 15 entrepreneurs that will be pitching, try to make sure you are one of the first or you are one of the last or else you will be forgotten about. Maybe not. Maybe you'd be fine. But that's what I would focus on is being one of the first and one of the last. Hey, that wraps it up. But I had an idea, which means I did have to stop recording while I put the pieces together here. But I had an idea. Uh, We're done. It's short and sweet. I always say I'm going to keep it short and sweet and I tend to go long. So I think we did a good job today. Also, would love to hear how this goes if you do attempt to use the serial position effect. Hit me up, jake at jakesavage.co or Instagram at it's Jake Savage. All right, here's the idea. In the beginning, I mentioned my new podcast and that one episode that I highly recommended, especially for this audience, The Power of Visualization and Imagery with the past guest we've had here, Dr. M.R. Blank. Instead of asking you to go check it out, I'm just going to include it right here, right now. So in a few seconds, this is going to come to an end and a new podcast episode is going to begin without you even having to go anywhere. Man, technology. So amazing. So amazing. All right. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this sample of my new podcast, but more importantly, I hope that you get some awesome and valuable insights for how to use the power of visualization and imagery in your conversations when it comes to being more persuasive. Enjoy. Have a fantastic rest of your April. Catch you guys next month. Adios. Welcome, everybody, to How Far One Can Go, a podcast where we explore the tips, tricks, tools, and of course, the tales of all things endurance. My name is Jake Savage, and I'm a recreational endurance athlete and the founder of the charity endurance team, Team AI. Check out our website at teamai.org for more information. All right. So for today, this was a fascinating discussion that I'm super stoked to share with you guys. It's with a woman who I've actually interviewed before my other podcast, Persuasion School, about a different topic, but her name is Dr. M.R. Blank, which sounds fake. Um, And I kind of think it could be fake since she works with special ops teams in the military. But she says that's her name. We'll trust her. So in a world of pseudo experts, like it's it's just crazy. And I've chatted about this before with other guests on the show. Um, you know, how everybody out there is just doing something for a year and calling themselves an expert. And you see a lot of it, especially in this in this fitness world, right? And that's what I love about the show. I'm on the journey here. I'm trying to learn just like you guys are trying to learn. And it was refreshing to speak to somebody who actually is an expert Dr. M.R. Blank has a PhD in sport and performance psychology. She is now a performance psychology consultant, primarily with military special ops teams. Uh, her and a couple other, uh, she well, she has a private practice called Tier One Mindset with a couple of other people. Uh, highly recommend checking out that. But she she's an endurance athlete herself. And today we got to dive deep into methods for improving your performance across the board. So whether you're an endurance athlete, an executive 
or if you're in the military as a soldier, just improving your performance through the use of two main things, visualization and imagery. Again, it was amazing just to pick MR's brain about what's what's happening in our brains when we're using visualization and imagery and how they can help us just perform at our absolute best at all times. So without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with Dr. MR Blank. I always go back to it. It's um, those that say it can't be done must get out of the way for those who are doing it. Yes. Which I do. And I don't know what, there's something about that quote that I'm like, yep, exactly. Yeah. Get the hell out of the way. (laughs) Get get the hell out of the way. I'm coming through. I may not be moving fast, but I'm, I'm going forward. Right. Yeah. No, I hear you. I've seen that on your site. Absolutely love that one too, which is good. So I'll weave these in, um, but excited to jump into it. So for anybody that's that's listening, um, sitting down with Dr. Mary Rose Blank, uh, MR, she goes by MR and you're a, your cognitive performance psychologist, right? Yes, yes, or I mean, you performance yeah. psychology consultant. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. And so with the, with the, with the army and over the last decade, plus I've been a cognitive performance coach specifically. Um, but then, you know, on the side in terms of like working with other populations such as athletes or corporate, um, my title technically is like performance psychology consultant. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you get to work with some fun people. Obviously we've got a mutual friend in the, in the military and then, um, yeah, we've chatted before about some of the like athletic things that you're involved in. And so what I wanted to get into today was some of, uh, something from your world, which is like the cognitive aspect of some of these endurance events, what's required, the mindset, the mentality to push through them, especially super just long runs, rides, whatever the case may be, but you also do this yourself, which is even better. So I want to get into that too. Yeah. There's so many mental skills involved in ultra events, right? Um, whether you're doing an Ironman, you're doing a 50 miler, you're doing, you know, anything, um, that endurance, that grit, that perseverance, I mean, you can, you can pull apart so many different mental skills and weave those into your training plan, right? Like, I mean, how long did it take you for some of your endurance events, six months, eight months, a year sometimes to like train up the optimal, right? Yeah. Um, and of course we look at our training plan and we say, okay, I'm going to do this on this day. I'm going to be in the pool this day. I'm going to hit the bike this day. I'm going to run X amount of miles this day. Why aren't we weaving in mental skills? Oh, right. Yes. So yeah. good. No. And I, I, I don't. So I want to start. <laughs> I think this is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about too, is just uh, unpack a little bit of, in terms of mental skills to put in your toolbox visualization. Obviously I think myself, at least I have a basic idea of what I think visualization is. And I'm sure everybody does listening, but like, let's get the real details from you on what this entails and what it's doing to you psychologically, at least when it comes to preparing for one of these events. Yeah. Great question. Probably one of the number one performance enhancing techniques when it comes to mental skills. Okay. Um, I'm going to, let's dive into the terms. So visualization versus imagery right? Terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Visualization is just really focused on what you see, right? Closing your eyes and visualizing the event, visualizing segments of the race. Um, And we can talk about the various aspects of that. What I like to coach athletes and performers on is using mental imagery. And imagery includes visualization, but imagery involves all of the senses, to include elements of emotions, 
feelings, um, time and kinesthetic feel, right? So visualization is just the, the visual sense eyes, seeing yourself imagery includes all the senses to include emotions and kinesthetic feel. And what imagery does for the brain specifically is it recreates that experience. It creates, it gives yourself a mental blueprint and you're basically creating that blueprint so that when you're faced with that situation, you're like, my mind's been here several times before, Hmm. instead of just lighting up the visual center, you're lighting up all the senses, which it's like a Simon says for your brain, your whole brain is lighting up. You're like, wow, I see, I feel, I taste, I touch, I smell. It's all, it's like a total sensory experience. And you recreate, you recreate basically that situation in your mind's eye where you're like, your you know, certain muscles are firing just like they would as if you were physically going through that task. Okay. So like it's muscle memory, but it's really the science of muscle memory. Your brain can't tell the difference between what's real versus what's imagined. So you close your eyes, you go through the, the imagery, your brain thinks that you're actually physically going through that imagery, right? You're not, you're sitting in your chair or you're maybe on the playing field, just closing Mm -hmm. your eyes, experiencing that but your brain actually thinks that you're going through that. So it's building those neural pathways to be really strong. Yeah. Okay. And so which, all right. So if you're, if you're preparing for one of these events, like which aspect of the event, or I guess it's just, is it just each stage? Like what would you use imagery for? I would imagine like when times get really tough. So I want to try to like picture what that would feel like um, okay. to be struggling and to go through it. What, do you, what else do you recommend? Yeah. So, so let's, um, let's even take that apart a little bit more. So when okay. you look at like an endurance event, one of the number one end states is, um, sustained perseverance through mental and physical challenges. Right. And otherwise known as like there are terms out there, like resilience or grit is a big mm-hmm. one. Angela yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, and so the whole idea is to persevere towards a long-term goal And that goal could be, I'm going to train for eight months to show up to this event and be able to push myself so that I achieve that desired end state, whatever that end state is. For some, it might be an elite status. For others, it might just be a recreational athlete kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is Mm -hmm. fine, whatever your goals are. Imagery allows you to see, feel, and experience certain segments of that journey. Right. So again, grit, long-term journey, training plan, long-term journey, race, Super Bowl event. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And so using imagery around your training schedule. So like maybe before you go out for a run, say the run is, we'll just make up a distance, 10 miles. The training run is 10 miles. You don't necessarily visualize the whole 10 miles but maybe you split it into certain segments of that run. So some people will split the race into two mile intervals or five mile intervals. So now if if it's a 10 mile race, you got two chunks of five, right? Um, And parts of that visualization could be, I see myself running in first person, right? As though I'm running on the trail and I I know we're going to hit a bend here in the trail. There's going to be some roots here. There's, I know there's a rock right there. I always see it every time I'm on this trail. And so you're, before you even hit the trail, you're going through those mental reps 
yeah. from your mind's eye, which is awesome for execution. The other perspective is third person, which would be watching yourself outside of yourself. Okay. So yeah. So Tom Brady's famous for doing this. A lot of athletes, they watch themselves on game tape, course correcting their technique, um, their, their posture, their demeanor, their body position, right? A lot of Olympic athletes will watch themselves execute an Olympic lift and, and critique their form and their technique, which is awesome for learning and skill acquisition. Okay. So lots of different ways. Okay. To apply this. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, man. Already like a couple questions. I'm just going to yeah, try please. to keep these no, succinct. Yeah. Um, the first one, I guess, just starting from what you just said in terms of visualization between third person and first person. So when would you know when to use mm-hmm. each? Because if you're doing one of these events, like you likely don't have footage to watch. Um, so when would you utilize the third person? And then when do you switch to first? Yep. So. Um, when you are learning and training anything in terms of technique, so if you're trying to work on your Kate, you know, your, your stride, for example, and you know what kind of stride you want to have, you could pull up video of somebody else, right? You could pull up YouTube videos and watch from the external perspective of like, that's the type of stride I want the, um, the type of terrain that I may see, right. From a third person perspective, I know for the JFK 50, I pulled up videos and there's so many videos of the race day, Mm. certain segments of the race. I tell you, Jake, before I even got there, I knew, oh yeah, there's the school that's always on the left. Oh, there's this, there's that. I was like, I've been here before. How reassuring for my confidence, right? And I've never been to that race. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So third person is usually for course correction, right? Because you're, you're watching yourself outside yourself. But when it time, when it comes time to like guns go off, you're, you're going mind's eye is better for execution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So, well, first off that also just resonated so much in terms of like having a good familiarity with the course, because a couple of years ago, one of the first things I did, I did it with Charlie and a couple of friends. We did this 50 mile ride in Colorado in the middle of nowhere, where I had lived there for five years. And I knew this path through the mountains, like the back of my hand, because I had driven back and forth, like catering over in the Southern town, this little mountain mining town. So for five years, I knew this mountain route. And when we finished that ride, like I did really well. And the other guys were like, dude, I had no idea how hard that, that was going to be. That was insane. And I was like, I told you guys it would be hard, but I knew every single turn, every ascent to descent. And for them, I think it was just completely new. Like no one had ever been there. And I think I probably had a tremendous advantage, but didn't even realize it, that most of it was probably just because of that. Familiarity. Yeah. hundred percent. Which right? leads to the confidence that I didn't realize that familiarity would lead to increased confidence. Yeah. So like, and this is a simple way when I, we mentioned, we were talking earlier about blending the physical with the mental, someone who's preparing for something like this could pull up, we'll call it YouTube videos. Cause that's easiest mm-hmm. find YouTube videos of the terrain of the race. People are always posting their GoPro videos of these things. Yeah. If you're doing a treadmill run, put the video on the treadmill 
and start running Ooh. while you're watching the JFK 50 race. Yeah, right? that's good. That's good. And now you're like in it, right? Mentally, you're like, and the guy's talking saying, you know, okay, this is really rocky. Watch out for the leaves. You're starting to create, again, that blueprint. It doesn't replace you physically being on the trail. Right, but right, men- right. mentally, it gives you an advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless you sprinkle like some wet leaves on the treadmill while you're <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. Okay. No, so that's good. And then when you, you said uh, like on, on race day, you switch and you're, you're thinking first person. So is it helpful to stick with third person pretty much all the way up until uh, so- race day? What I typically recommend is it's, this is a skill, just like any other skill. And so sometimes athletes have trouble going from third person to first person or first person to third. Mm. I usually try to gauge, like, this is really a progression. I use periodization, just like you would use periodization for physical training. Um, I use periodization for mental training. And so I start very basic of like, where does the athlete's mind go when they close their eyes and they see themselves performing a task. And some of them are like, I'm seeing myself, you know, we'll use basketball, dribbling the ball down the court. Okay. Are you watching yourself in the stands from the stands or are you literally physically in your body dribbling down the court? Oh, I'm in the stands. Okay. Try to switch the lens be the director of your own film and try to find mind's eye. And sometimes they can't do that right away. Really, It's challenging for some. Okay. Yeah. Challenging. So, so does only that version though, mind's eye. So first person visualization, is that the only type of visualization or, or sorry, imagery that helps to create these neural pathways? Like, can you also achieve that through third person? You could. So here's the, this is the disclaimer with third person. This is where a lot of folks get tripped up using third person when it's time to execute sometimes has a negative effect, meaning they start critiquing their performance. So imagine if you're watching a football Hmm. play unfold on TV, you're like, no, don't throw it there. Right. And you're watching and you're going, you shouldn't have been there. You should have been there. Your stride should have been a little bit, eh, you know, your gait and you start to like be over and analytical because you're watching yourself perform versus yeah. just doing it out of your mind's eye. Does huh, that make interesting. Sense? Yeah. But do you think that that stems from purely curious here, would that stem or be more associated, more likely to be associated with someone who tends to be negative or, or like less optimistic, I guess, yeah. or not necessarily, not necessarily. I don't think necessarily. I think what it is, is we are constantly trying to improve our game whatever that game is, whether you're a top level executive and you're trying to close a deal in the boardroom, or you are an elite athlete running an endurance event, right? Um, I think people are just always trying to improve. And so when you have a camera lens, that's watching yourself, you can start to make those course corrections, right? Highly important for learning and skill acquisition. Absolutely. It's great to do those debrief moments of like, you know, like watching film. I remember watching film all the time in sport and thinking, yeah, I could have went there. I could have done this. I could have done that. And then closing my eyes and just trying to visualize or imagine myself actually in that scenario again, right? Playing defense or 
running a certain segment on a trail, right? What would I have done differently? Where would my foot placement would it should have been? How could I have corrected that? But in the moment, it's not time to analyze and critique what I should or should not be doing. I should just be doing right in that moment. And so we really try as sports psychology consultants to shift the perspective from external, which is grading and evaluating and and course correcting third person to first person, which is I'm automatically executing. Okay. Does that, like when you say that, what comes to mind for me is, all right, like, I'm just curious if that requires a certain amount of grace, so to speak for yourself when you're in first person. Yeah. Is that the case? Like if you screw up, like just stick with that first person, stay in it because of, okay. Yeah. I think, so there's a couple other elements of, of, mental imagery that are also important that help bring the perspective along two other components that that are very important to mention is the vividness of the imagery and the controllability of the imagery. So let's take those two apart. So the vividness of the imagery is how many senses can you elicit when you go through this experience? So if we were going to do again, um, segments of a race that you already anticipate are going to be super challenging. And you've already know those segments of the race. Hey, when I, when I get to this Hill, it's going to be super physically taxing. So I want to, I want to use imagery for this segment. I would ask you to like, okay, we want to see, we want to maybe feel right. Your hands on the bike, um, your body position, right. I want you to get physically into the body position. Maybe you're on a trainer bike and we're kind of talking through this, right? Mm. How are you feeling? What kind of the lactic acid buildup, all those things. We're trying to elicit all of these senses. So that's the vividness part, right? And then you have the controllability. What happens if something goes wrong? So Michael Phelps used to do this in the pool all the time. He used to visualize and, and imagine using imagery, his cap ripping, his goggles getting fogged up, my goggles broke, my this, my that, my opponent, all these things, right? But he would always control the end state. So that's the controllability. He never, oh, the the cap ripped, woe is me. No, it was the cap ripped and this is what I'm gonna do to persevere using grit, determination, all those things to win, right? To, To come out on top so that you always, you always close the visualization or the imagery script in this case um, with the positive outcome. The controllability is the positive outcome. Yeah. Mm. So there's three fundamentals, right? You got, we talked <sighs> perspective. We talked internal versus external imagery. We talked controllability in terms of ending on a positive note. You might visualize setbacks, but you always end with the positive. That's the controllability. And then you have the vividness, which is how many senses can I insert into this mental rehearsal? Yeah. And actually to that one point, cause I'm thinking about the senses as you are describing this to me. Mm. Um, and obviously you said that all five are included, but does that, does that play a role with like the strength of the neural pathway created? Like if you leave out smell and you leave out hearing and you just, use whatever touch and and sight or something. Right. Um, yeah. Like, are you weakening or potentially weakening the neural pathway? Okay. So, yeah. So what I would say, right. Is again, starting from like basic one-on-one 
if you're teaching someone, you know, Hey, I want you say you're a client of mine. You say, Hey, I want to start incorporating imagery into my physical training. I'd want to know where you're at in terms of your skill level. So you may say, MR, I'm only able to visualize myself. I can only see it. I'm not really like feeling it. I can't smell anything. Like I'm trying to elicit this. I'd say, start where you're at, right? You don't need all six, right? Or five senses. I say six because emotions, oh, okay. <laughs> Feelings, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Spidey sense, anticipation, things like that. Right. Um, but five, you don't need all five, but if we can start with two or more, awesome. Great starting point. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just slowly building up to it and getting better like anything else. Okay. Exactly. So does that mean that, I mean, it sounds like this is uh, a preventative measure to, as like a safety net for when sometimes things do hit the fan during one of these events, but what, like, let's say you have not implemented imagery or visualization and you're in an event and then things go wrong. Like, what is it that would slow you down? Because before I had thought, like before this conversation, I would have thought that you're like the, just the pain gets too much. Or, I mean, I guess that's probably it. Just like the pain gets too much or whatever, or you're just, you're just completely deflated by how much further you have left to go. And it seems like an insurmountable like distance. Um, and so I would have just chalked it up to that. Oh, it's, it's, that's what it is pain or just like unable to finish for whatever reason. But I'm just, I'm asking this and now I'm like borderline ranting, but I'm just curious if uh, like really is the stem or root of those issues, a lack of confidence? Is that where it comes from? Cause it sounds like the visualization is helping to lead to confidence during those times. Yeah. I think definitely confidence helps with, or sorry, excuse me, imagery helps with build confidence, right? But someone can still make it to the finish line potentially without incorporating some of this stuff. Right. And so the question becomes like, man, what did they do to persevere? You know, they didn't use visualization. They don't have to necessarily use visualization. Most of the time athletes are using it without even knowing they're using it. Right. That's a whole other thing. Like we've all thought about what to expect on race day. It may have not been as systematic as what we just broke down. But a lot of the athletes, especially at the elite level, when I talk about like, hey, what did you do to prepare? They start talking about concepts of imagery or visualization. Um, but I think there's also something to the fact of um, these events. Like when you ask somebody, like, why are you doing this? Like, what is in it for you? What's the purpose here? It's not necessarily just to feel like um, what's the word I think I use at the beginning. Like it's not necessarily to just endure like pain necessarily. It's to see what one is made out of because the goal, the hope, and, and in fact, this week I was listening to a podcast, Tommy Rives, a lead yeah. athlete. He just, they just did an interview on, um, the rich role podcast. Yeah. Listen to that one. Wow. Mind blowing. He talked specifically about like, why do people, you know, um, do these things? It's the transferability of the skills. Really, when you talk, when you think about it, like if I can endure this 50 miles, the intent, the hope, and a lot of the research would point to, I can endure life 
outside of this 50 miles. So when I am faced with, God forbid, a death in the family, I lose my job, a a loved one gets sick, um, I get in a car accident and I have a flat tire, right? Or something, something in life happens. These endurance events for a lot of these folks that participate in them, um, equip them better to handle other things in life. And so going back to your original question, I don't think necessarily like not all athletes use these mental skills. Um, some of them just participate in these events and by pure like byproduct, they develop a lot of this mental toughness as well. So, um, it's both, it's both. And I would say, I think that setting an athlete up for success by giving them tools such as goal setting and imagery and all these other like different performance routines makes them better equipped hundred percent, but they don't necessarily need to have them to be successful. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Another thought that crossed my mind, and this would be like a mistake. I would assume a lot of athletes would make. I know I've made this plenty because I hadn't thought about a lot of this stuff until just now. Uh, but when it comes to using imagery and visualization, my, if you, if you had like not explained anything to me and just said, Hey, imagery is this visualization is this, it helps my immediate go-to would be, Oh, I'm going to visualize myself crossing the finish line uh, and just use imagery of crossing yeah. the finish line and like hoping that that would be enough to maybe boost it. But obviously like you need to do it. So, uh, you know, now that I know this, you would do it like for times that are tough, right? You're going to imagine when it gets really bad and you're going to use imagery there. I mean, it's, is there any, <clears throat> you just recommend doing it for the whole thing, like chunk breaking into chunks in every single piece or like what's the best strategy? Yeah. I think like, um, a lot of folks will break the site, break it down into segments, challenging okay. portions. So like for me, if I think of back on like a marathon, it's usually anywhere between miles, like 16 and 20 ish where life starts to happen inside of me <laughs> and yeah, I start a great to get way to really it. ugly inside <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and I have to be able to physically keep moving forward, but mentally and emotionally, I have to like embrace what's going on and channel that in a way that is effective for what I'm trying to do. Right. Um, again, if we go back to like Tommy ribs and this whole transferable skills, like that concept of like, something is hard. I have to have the mental and emotional, like appetite to persevere through this that happens in life, right? Like you could be having a really tough conversation with your boss or a coworker and emotions are high and you feel like you're just going to burst and you have to have the emotional intelligence to regulate, to breathe through that to see yourself, no pun intended, visualize yourself, image yourself, having a successful conversation in those tough moments in life. Right. And so I think it's, it goes, it's both. And, um, with that specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So is it almost a, would you chalk it up as a mistake or is that too harsh? Would you chalk it up as a mistake to just use imagery for crossing the finish line? I think no. So there's different types of um, imagery, like motivational specific, and we can get into like different concepts there, but some people will visualize the finish line and crossing the finish line and getting that medal or getting, I think that's a portion of it, but that's so outcome driven. 
it's outcome driven, right? So there's a problem with just visualizing that because the process is more relevant, especially when you look at things like intrinsic motivation. What we know about intrinsic motivation is the process is more important. The, the autonomy of like breaking things down in a specific way, the competence and the competence that I can handle chunks of the race to get to the finish line is more important than just visualizing the finish line, right? The finish line is the end state. It's the outcome. There's a lot of adversity in between point A to point B. And so my goal as a sports psychology consultant is to get the athlete, the performer, the soldier to look at the movie in frames. What does frame one look like? Oh, it's miles one through five. Great. What to, what are you going to expect physically, mentally, and emotionally in frame one? Okay. Let's move to frame two. Let's walk through that. What's, what's going to be expected there? Well, there's a couple hills. There's a couple segments where there's a blind spot, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, and then getting closer and closer to that desired end state, which is crossing that finish line, the crossing the finish line, like I said, is an outcome driven achievement. It's also somewhat extrinsic, extrinsic motivation of like, I finished, um, I, I got an award, right? I got a medal. It's an extrinsic motivator. The process is more intrinsic. The Mm. journey, the journey, the hard work, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the grit is more, um, is really where the training comes into play is really where imagery has the most bang for the buck. Cause you're looking at how you manage and handle the process. And there's going to be a ton of adversity that happens, but watching yourself persevere and handle those setbacks, then finishing with, wow, I completed that. Um, Almost like you cross the finish line and you turn around and you look back on all those frames and you say, wow, I'm freaking proud of you. Like, (laughs) holy, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 100%. And it's like, it's all becoming so clear now that you're saying this, because when you're training for several months, or in some cases, a year plus for a lot of people, you're laying that foundation of that intrinsic motivation, because you're getting out there on the rainy days, the cold days, you're getting on the trainer, whatever it is, right? You're going through that. But at no point during your training, are you crossing a finish line with a ton of people around you? So that's like a brand new thing that never existed over the past few months. So that's probably not going to have any roots anywhere. And you could just, that's where maybe you could give up. I'm assuming like if you're, if you've built everything on that one piece of visualization, I don't know, man. It also could be overwhelming for some people. Like if you're running a 50 miler and the gun goes off and you're thinking about the finish line, you're like, wow, I still got several hours until I get there. Right. So, um, you know, I, I often joke with, with other friends and colleagues in the field. It's like, why are you running this race? Well, for the medal, you know, and we laugh and we're like, well, of course that medal is pretty sweet. Yeah. (laughs) But really why? Like, what's the purpose? What, what is the goal? Why are you doing this? I think that's always a really, um, reflective, call it spiritual, like question to ask somebody is like, 
why are you doing this? And you start digging deep into like the purpose behind this journey. And the journey is what you visualize. The training schedule is what you endure. The event is like showtime, right? And now all the hard work kind of uh, gets taught. It's really, it's time to showcase all the hard work. In yeah. That moment. yeah. Yeah. No, so true. Man, tons of wisdom right there. Okay. Yeah. Which is so good. And I think just, uh, especially taking a, uh, a strategy like visualization and just kind of like flipping it on its head for what most people think, just like visualizing using only maybe sight instead of some of the other sentences and probably only visualizing yourself crossing the finish line, not tapping into all the other, uh, you know, ways to utilize that skill. So I, I have one question just before we wrap up in terms of like practicality with the five senses yeah. smell, what would you like, how would you, uh, overcome that to somebody that like to, to tap into the smell other yeah. than like going to a place yep. or something. So it's, it, a lot of times it could be like it, the point of smell is to elicit that deja vu experience. Right. So mm-hmm. ever like smell is the most important um, sense when it comes to memory, right? This, you hear this a lot of recollections, um, from like athletes where they're like, Oh, I smell the locker room, like the locker room smell. You just never get out of your, you know, you could just never forget that. Or like soldiers they'll recall like in combat, the smell of gunpowder or worst case scenario, you know, like flash or like, just really, it's very vivid. It's very like memory is made when you start to activate the smell sense. Um, You know, if I asked you like, what does, you know, what does a fireplace smell like? You're like, oh yeah, fireplace. Like you could, you could elicit that smell, right? Um, Wood burning type of thing. So the point of smell is to create, like to give your brain that opportunity to go there without physically going there. Yeah. yeah. And it, it creates it. It makes it more vivid. It makes it really vivid. Right. So, um, for, for an ultra or specifically like, you know, um, a race, it could be the wet, the smell of wet, right. Like wet leaves, um, the, the, the smell of rain, um, water, if it's a chlor, like if it's an, if you're in a pool or something, the smell of the chlorine, the smell of the ocean, like, different. And again, it depends on the task. It depends on if it's basketball, the smell of the the basketball potentially, or the sound. Now I'm going into sound, but like the sounds of like your bike and your feet hitting the pavement or the trail, the birds, things like that. So, but are you imagining the smell or would you like, would you go outside and get some leaves? And (laughs) like, seriously, because I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Props are great. You could, you could use props. I'm all about that. Like for, for tennis, put your, put, put the racket in your hand and like elicit Mm -hmm. the feel of the racket, right? Ball, basketball, if it's a ball, baseball, put your glove on, like you could use props. You could go out and bring leaves in there and, you know, or, or on a, more importantly, on a training run, Yeah. pay attention, develop awareness in training. Like I always ask is like, what senses do you feel when you're on a, like a training run? Well, I smell this and I hear this and I taste this, like the goose, the gels, the camelback, you know? Oh, well, those are relevant. Let's, let's create that now in my office, just sitting here, like going through a script. So you could elicit that, build the self-awareness 
when you're actually training for the event. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I don't know if you listened to the Leah Goldstein uh, episode on Rich Roll. I didn't. Not yet. No. Okay. Are you familiar with her? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So Please, she just. Yeah. Briefly. I ha- I'm not like. Yeah. She just won the Ram. Yeah. Oh, n- wait. I'm thinking of somebody else. No. Okay. I, I don't. So, yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. So just super quick, because I know we've got to take off here, but the Ram is a 3000 mile bike race across the country. It's been in existence for 39 years. Um, Leah Goldstein just won it in 2021. She's the first woman to, she won, but she also beat out all of the men as well. Yeah. And so she just knocked it out of the park and so many people dropped out because we had a heat wave this past year. Um, but when Rich was interviewing her, he was asking her about some of her tactics. She will like, if it's, if it's terrible weather or whatever, especially snowy where she's at up in Canada, she'll be on her trainer. She'll be on the trainer all day with no music, no TV, no computer, nothing just to do what you said, which is like replicate that experience of not having those things. I love that. Um, and that, that was something else I was going to, I was going to speak to is just the eliciting and mimicking the quiet Mm. and the time with yourself. Right. So I I often ask a lot of athletes that I work with, like to try running without headphones, to try running without some of those external distractors. Like I want you to be with yourself in this moment. It's a meditative practice. And so I love that example of like, I'm on the trainer all day, like, you know, no headphones, no nothing. It's yeah. me in the, in the bike, you know, so to speak. So I feel like that's a whole nother episode we could get into, which is the you fact could. that there are probably a lot of people that would be terrified to spend that much time with themselves. It, you're and I would love to know why, because there's got to be some deep like psychology behind that. So maybe we get into that. Yeah. Another episode. Yeah. Even if you ask folks, Jake, to, to spend five or 10 minutes doing meditation, it is my first question that they get, I get asked is, can I check my email while I do that? Really? Yes. No, you can't. You have to literally sit still. Is that okay with you? (laughs) (laughs) So we've, we've conditioned ourselves to be constantly yeah. stimulated and removed from the present moment. So yeah, ultra racing and ultra training is being with yourself and finding that mindful meditation to see what you're made of. Like, can I get it through this? Can I make yeah. it through this? It might look ugly, but I, I, I'm going to, you know, make it to that finish line and feel pride, feel success, feel resilience. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that's, so that's a something right there. Yeah. Yeah. We should dive into that. But, um, MR appreciate you a ton for just <clears throat> sharing the wisdom and being willing to jump on and chat about this stuff for anybody that's listening. That's interested in learning more about your space, your world. You also, um, have a group called tier one mindset where you work with, I think soldiers, executives, and athletes. So how, how can people follow you or just, I get it. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thanks for putting that out there. So, um, tier one mindset. Yeah. Multidisciplinary approach. We use strength and conditioning, uh, sports psychology and nutrition. Those are our three big pillars. Um, you can find us on tier one mindset.com is our website. And then on Instagram and Facebook at tier one mindset. Okay. So awesome. Cool. Well, thanks again.
I truly hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode. And if you found the show valuable, I'd encourage you to rate or review us on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast on. Each rating goes a long way and helps us to spread our message to more people looking to build up their endurance, people like you, people like me. And if you'd like more info on me or our charity endurance team, catch me on Instagram at It's Jake Savage or visit teamai.org. Until next time, keep pressing on.